You are listening to episode 11 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 19. Dunsany Road's Orbital, 2352, April 17. With the unsavory Murdoch out of the picture, I was still faced with the problem of how to get to Alicia Alvarez. She was a popular woman and with good cause. She moved like a panther and was just as sleekly beautiful. The challenge was going to be cutting her out of the pack. I leaned over to my new friend Al and asked, What's the protocol on officers? She leaned down so she could hear me over the rising noise. What do you mean, Ishmael? Protocol. I let my eyes flicker to where Alvarez was standing with a group of spacers. Officers. Are they eligible? She still looked confused until Alvarez looked in our direction. A slow grin spread across her broad face. You do like a challenge, don't you? She said to me while looking into her beer. I just need to know if the worst she can say is no. Anybody here is here. Nobody's wearing tabs and nobody's saying sar. Beyond that, you're on your own. But you've already got high marks in my book for just considering it, she said. You sure you don't want to come back to my flop with me, she teased. I'll take out the sharpest pieces, she said, and flicked the skull pierced through her left nipple. You tempt me, but I'm afraid I'm not man enough for you, Al. She roared again, but the noise had built to the point where almost nobody outside of our immediate group could even hear it. She leaned down. If you're man enough for what you're thinking, kid, you're more man than three-quarters of the men here. She started to drink her beer and stopped to add, and half the women. She really was a hoot. I was half tempted to take her up on her offer. I'd learned some time back that orgasms and laughter go well together, especially when shared. Still, the problem was cutting Alvarez out of the herd long enough to get her attention. Just then the band started, and Alvarez's hips moved in time to the beat. None of the men she was with seemed to notice. I drained my drink and put the glass on the table. It was only my second, and it had been ginger ale. I knew my limit on gin, and I didn't want to be near it that night. Brill caught the movement and looked at me quizzically. I winked at her with a grin. Then I stood up and leaned over to give Al a kiss on the top of her shaved dome. Wish me luck, Al, I said, and slipped from behind the table. As I crossed over to where Alvarez was standing, one of the tall, dark men who thought he was entertaining her saw me coming. Her hips were definitely moving to the beat, and I wondered if she were even aware of it. She saw what's-his-name looking and turned to see what he was looking at. I kept focused on two thoughts. All she can say is no was the first. I'm wearing Henri Roubaix was the second. She saw me coming, her head turning before she swung her body around. I smiled and looked at her eyes. I could see the, oh gods, what does he want, flash across her face, but I didn't look away. I stopped about a meter from her and held out my hand. I said the word dance, but I knew she couldn't hear it over the noise. I didn't even hear it, but I knew she could see it on my mouth, and I nodded to the dance floor in invitation. Tall, dark, and boring tried to get her attention back with a careful hand on her elbow. I could see it in my peripheral vision, but I didn't take my eyes off hers. I kidded myself into thinking I had a choice and that I might actually have chosen not to look. I was careful not to make it a demand, but more an offer. With the offer made, I waited for her to make up her mind. The idiot behind her tried to get her attention once more, and she drained her drink without looking away, her eyes laughing over the rim, and she handed the empty to whoever he was before taking my outstretched hand. With a smile, she turned and led me to the dance floor, her fingers still cool and wet from the glass. She started dancing before we even made it to the floor, feet shuffling, hips shaking with intent, 
I did the best I could to follow. I wasn't a bad dancer, just not a very good one. It's not how well you dance, Ishmael, Mom had said. It's whether or not you mean it. With Alvarez on that dance floor, I meant it. Every bit of it. Eventually, the band took a break, and I finally got a chance to talk to her. She spoke first. You're Wong, right? From the Lois? Guilty as charged, I said. You're Alvarez from the Duchamp. She nodded. Yeah, that's me. I held out a hand to shake this time. Pleased to meet you. You dance like a madwoman, I told her with a grin. She took my hand and shook it firmly, but didn't let it go. You're not so bad yourself, she said, looking me in the eyes again. God, she had beautiful eyes. Can I buy you a drink, she asked. Ginger ale would be good, I said, very much aware that she still held my hand and that her skin was scorching hot. Ginger ale, she asked with a smile in her eyes. You came to a bar to drink ginger ale? No, I told her. I came to a bar to meet a fascinating woman. I drink ginger ale, so I'll remember her later. Her eyes danced. Damn, you're good, she said with a delightful little laugh. Thanks, you're a wonderful audience. I'll be here till Thursday. Try the fish, I teased her. Let's see if we can find that drink, she said seriously. She didn't let go of my hand as she led me off the floor and back toward the bar. She led me past the table, Al raised her glass and toast, and Brill turned, staring in disbelief. Diane saw her looking, and I saw her track across to me, and a huge smile erupted on her face just before the crowd closed around me and I lost sight of her. Alvarez led me to a table around the corner from the band and the worst of the noise. People back here seemed to be engaged in a variety of conversations, ranging from eight or so in a heated discussion of the relative merits of various engine manifold temperatures, to a quartet in black leather discussing the symbolism in Panu Narvat's new hollow Lost in Transition. Back here you could actually hear yourself speak. The waitress took our order as we sat down across from each other at a small table with a bad wobble and a smear of spilled drinks on it. She came back in a tick with the drinks and a damp rag to swab down the table. I let Alvarez pay for the drinks, and when the waitress left, raised my glass and toast. Thanks, I told her. You're welcome, she said, and sipped hers. Oh, this is good, she said with a surprise. You've never had it before, I asked. She gave an embarrassed little flick of her head. Actually, no, at least not straight, she added with a grin. When I realized who you were, I wanted to say thank you, I told her. She sipped again, and neither of us dared put our drinks on the table because it kept wobbling so badly. Thank me. For what, she asked. Do you remember a greeny wiper in an environmental guy named Carstairs? About a year ago, she asked. We traded him for Murdoch. Yeah, I believe so. I remember him. Nice kid. Got off on the wrong foot with the crew and was in a hurry to get somewhere. That's him. He gave him good advice, and I wanted to thank you for it. What'd I tell him? She asked. Slow down and enjoy the ride. He took it to heart. He's doing well over on the Lois. He's still on the mess deck and doing good things for the ship. He credits you for his turnaround. She chuckled. Well, you never know where the seeds will sprout, do you? Thanks for telling me. Is that why you asked me to dance? I shook my head. No. I asked you to dance because even from across the room I could tell you needed to get out there and shake those hips and none of the guys you were with seemed to notice. What made you think I'd go? She asked. I didn't, I said, but I was pretty sure you weren't going to ask me. She laughed at that. Well, that's probably true. Although, give me some credit, I did notice that you disposed of Murdoch pretty quickly, she said with a grin. You're a good person. You look out for your own, I told her. She chuckled. And she's one of mine, after all. Eh? You didn't like her? I told you, I said. I came to meet a fascinating woman. She just wasn't that interesting. There's more to life than cleavage. She laughed a bit bitterly. Most guys don't have that particular view, she said. I'm not most guys, I said. She looked at me then with a speculative light in her eyes. I can see that, she said. 
We sat there quietly sipping and looking at each other for a while. Are you always this quiet, she asked. Are you, I countered. No, she laughed. Usually I chatter away a kilometer a tick. I shrugged. I thought we were communicating pretty well, actually, I said with a smile. Am I boring you? She shook her head. Not yet. Let me know when I am and I'll go, I told her. Just like that, she asked. I say, okay, you're boring me and you leave. I gave a little shrug. Of course, what else? What if I bore you? Will you tell me to leave? She asked curiously. I doubt that you could bore me, I told her. I don't even know you yet. Damn, you're good. Classical training? She asked as a joke. My mom was an ancient lit professor. I grew up on him, I told her. You're kidding, she said. I shook my head. Now, Melville and Forrester were specialty areas, but I grew up with Shakespeare. What about you? Classical training? I pushed back with a smile. The only classics I ever got were at the academy, she said, and there wasn't much there. That last sounded a bit bitter, so I didn't push it. Where'd you get your philosophical outlook? Enjoy the ride. She looked a little embarrassed. Fortune cookie, she said. It was so unexpected, I laughed. Okay, you got me. No, she said, seriously. I was just finishing up at the academy, and I went out to dinner one night to an oriental place there in Port Newmar. We're all having this discussion about postings and ships and where there were openings and who was going to go where and all that. There was a lot of beer and no small amount of sake. I kept saying how much I wanted to get done with the academy and get onto a ship, like getting onto a ship was going to be some kind of answer, you know, like I'd be there. Oh, yeah, I said, I know very well. I just wanted her to keep talking. I didn't care what she said. We got the fortune cookies and mine said, Life is the only journey with a final destination. That must have made quite an impression, I said. Well, I'm still using it five years later, but at the time I think the beer and sake were contributing factors, she said with a rueful grin. Can I ask you something, she added. Sure, I said. Where did you get that jacket? It's spectacular. I got it here on the orbital the other day, I told her. Chez Henri, up on 11. No way you were at Chez Henri. What do you want to bet? If you were at Chez Henri, I'll give you a night you'll never forget, she said with a smoldering look that I think she practiced in the mirror because it was very, very effective. No bet, I told her. Ha, she said, I knew it. You've already done that. You'll need to do better, I said with a smile. She stopped then and laughed. Damn, you are good. What'll it take to convince you, I asked. And what are the stakes? She looked at me then. My gods, you were, she said. I held open the jacket so she could see the label on the inside lining. That doesn't prove anything, she said, but I could tell she wasn't disputing my claim anymore, just the evidence. I finished my drink and put the empty glass on the table and just looked at her. You were? Yeah, you know Brill, Billington Smith, I asked. Your boss, she said, of course. She was there with me, insisted on going, I said. No way. I nodded. Yeah, we took Beverly and Diane, too. Beverly? She asked incredulously. Black leather, buzz cut, Beverly? Hey, that's my shipmate you're talking about, I said with a grin. And Diane Ardell works with you in environmental. Petite little mink. Mink's more like, but yeah, that's her. You took three women to Chez Henri. Well, Ms. Avril was busy and couldn't go with us or there'd have been four. You're kidding. I am not kidding. It wasn't even my idea. When Brill heard I had an introduction to Henri Roubaix, she insisted. I thought we were going to have half the ship up there watching me change clothes. You had an introduction? Well, yeah, I think that's about the only way you can get to see him. His receptionist is a pro. Where'd you get the invitation, she asked. Brichot on St. Cloud gave it to me. You're kidding. You've got to stop saying that, I said. I stood there and held out my hand. Come on. 
Where are we going, she asked. You'll see. She put her hand in mine, and I pulled her to her feet. I led her back to where Brill was still sitting, but she'd moved to my old seat beside Al. Brill got a really funny grin on her face, and Al gave me a big wink and raised her glass in my direction. You know these women, I think, I said to Alvarez. Hi, Brill. Hey, Al, she said. Hey, A.A., Al said with a grin. Hello, Alicia, Brill replied. How's it going? Good, she said. This one is something, huh? She nodded in my direction. Al spoke up then. Hell, I've only known him for two stands, and I know that, she said with a laugh. Brill smiled. You have no idea, Alicia. Settle a bed for me, B, she said. Sure, if I can. Where'd you get this jacket? Chaise Henri, up on 11. Why? They got the whole outfit there the other day. Bev and Diane and I went with him. And Jillian was too busy. I think she slit her wrists by now, but yeah, she had the duty. How did he get into Henri's? Well, we were on St. Cloud, and he got an introduction from Brichot. The Brichot, she asked. Brill shrugged. Is there more than one? Why did Brichot give him an introduction? Brill was grinning by this time, because the jacket he tried on didn't fit, and we didn't have time for it to be tailored before we shipped out. Alicia started laughing. This is all true, isn't it, she said. Brill said, oh, yeah. Did he tell you his rating, she asked. Well, Engineman, isn't it? Brill nodded. Yeah, but... He's also rated as Ordinary Spacer, Cargo Handler, and Food Handler. In a few weeks, he'll be Spec 2 Environmental as well, she said with a certain air of pride. Alicia looked at me and said, Are you looking for a new berth? Brill said, Hey, no poaching. He's mine. But she was smiling. I found I liked the way she'd said, He's mine. Alicia giggled and gripped my hand a little more firmly. The temperature rose in the bar by about 10 C with that giggle. She looked back at Brill then and said, can I borrow him for a few stands, then? I'll bring him back, I promise. Okay, Brill said warily, but don't break him. I need him on watch tomorrow night. I confess it felt a little odd being bargained over like that, but the comment that Diane had made at dinner about what it means to be a spacer hit hard just then. Something must have shown in my face, because Brill asked me, Are you okay-ish? Yeah, I said. It just struck me what you said earlier about civilians. She nodded knowingly, even a bit sadly. How funnish, she said with a wink. Bless her heart. Now wait up, I said, and let the fascinating Alicia Alvarez lead me out of the bar. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., 
Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Chapter 20. Dunsany Roads Orbital, 2352, April 17. Alicia Alvarez led me out of jump and straight to the lift. It was very nice walking along hand in hand. I enjoyed the looks the other spacers gave us, and I think Alicia did too. She had a little smile on her face as we walked along. You don't have to do this, you know, we both said at once and laughed. Okay, you go first, she told me. You've already given me a night I'll never forget. It was a sucker bet. You think I'm paying off a bet? She asked gently as we waited for the lift, and she looked up at me. No, I said just as gently. Now your turn. You don't seem quite as sure of yourself as you did earlier, she said. It's a cultural thing. I'm still adjusting to life aboard, I think. A case of be careful what you wish for, she suggested. The lift arrived then, and we got on with a rowdy group who rode up two levels and fell off the lift at the docks. She punched number seven, and we kept riding up. I shook my head. No, I don't think so. You're a fascinating and stunning woman. I don't know you except remotely because of hearing about you from Pip. Of all the women in that bar, you picked me because of Pip? She asked with a little grin. Why pick any? Murdoch was a setup, I told her. The lift stopped on level seven, and we stepped off and started strolling along the corridor, still hand in hand. I had no idea where we were headed, if we were headed anywhere at all, but her hand felt nice in mine. What? she asked. Murdoch was a setup. She was supposed to latch onto me and take me out for a spin. What makes you say that? she asked. I overheard more of a conversation than I was supposed to. Some people who care about me very deeply were trying to take care of me in a way that they couldn't. You mean, Brill set you up to get laid? she asked. Yeah, she knew Murdoch from when she was aboard the Lois. Murdoch wouldn't have fit on the Lois. I think that's why Mr. Maxwell was willing to trade her for Pip. I'm not sure she fits on the Duchamps either, but you didn't hear that from me, she said. Anyway, Brill was pretty sure that if Murdoch got anywhere near me, she'd glom onto the fresh meat, and she did. Oh, yeah, Alicia said. Diane and Bev were livid about it, but Brill is a powerful force in her own right. I think that by the time Diane and Brill found out it was a done deal and the meet-up at Jump was only a matter of time. And you got pissed because they set you up. Is that why you unloaded Murdoch? I shook my head. A couple of days ago, eh, maybe. This is going to sound strange, but something happened up at Rubaillet's. Some kind of odd bonding. The whole thing was surreal. I think we became friends, not just shipmates, but real friends. You think, she asked, isn't that something you know? Probably for most people, but I'm a cripple that way, I said. She gave me a crooked grin and said, I don't know, Ish, you look pretty healthy to me. I laughed, physically, but I wasn't kidding about my mother, the lit professor. We lived in the university enclave in Neris for almost my whole life, just mom and me. I wasn't just an only child, but I was also the outsider in my peer group. Have you always talked like that, she asked. Yeah, pretty much as long as I can remember. Why do you think I was the outsider in my peer group, I teased her. Point taken, she said. She released my hand then and took my arm. I felt nice. Anyway, the nearest thing I can remember to having a friend was Angela Markova, about a lifetime ago. She left when her father went to work for another company. Oh, my, she said. Please pardon this next question. No, I'm not a virgin, I said with a crooked grin. Phew. <laughs> 
she said. I was feeling guilty enough about cradle robbing without having to deal with that, too. I said I didn't have friends, I continued. I knew a lot of kids. Some girls are turned on by brains, even some of the pretty and popular ones. They just wouldn't talk to me when anybody else was around. I haven't been a virgin since I was fourteen. I don't even remember her name. Good grief, she said. So the upshot is, I've read about best friends. I know the idea of the boon companion. I've just never had one. That's kind of weird. She looked me in the face then and said, you're serious. Very, I told her. Being aboard the Lois has been like being pulled out of solitary confinement almost. I mean, I had a life, but it was me and my mother and her occasional lovers. Life in the Enclave was intellectually stimulating, but emotionally bankrupt. You seem pretty well adjusted, she commented. Thanks, but I'm very aware that my youth, while odd, carried a lot of advantages that many people never had. I was never hungry, never beaten. We always had a roof over our heads and something interesting to do. I hear horror stories of people who grew up hungry, hurt, and abused. I feel kind of lucky. My only problem is I never had a friend. So you think that you and Brill and the others are friends now? Yeah, I said, something like that. And I think they see me as a bit of a shy backwater nerd who needed a little help in making the sexual connection. And they thought it should happen before we get underway again. Why would they think that? This is the first time I have been off that ship after 2200 since I came aboard last September. They know I haven't been sleeping with anybody on board, and they know I haven't had any opportunities in port. Pip got injured in my first port of call, and I never even got off the ship for over three months. When I did, it was to go out to dinner so I could have a meal I didn't have to clean up after. And you still seem relatively sane, she said. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's open to discussion, I said with a grin. And you think they set up Murdoch? Oh, I know they set up Murdoch, that's a given. And I'm pretty sure they did it because they thought I needed it and Murdoch was a sure bet. Distasteful, but certain. I think Brill provided the opportunity, but left the outcome up to me. Murdoch was there, she was available, and if I wanted it, I could have it. I shrugged. And you didn't want it? Of course I want it. I'm as healthy a guy as anybody. Just not her. Well, then why me? She asked. Because you were the sexiest woman in the room, and just watching you was driving me crazy. And because you figured if you could get me, you'd prove to Brill and the others that you didn't need their help? I shrugged. Well, perhaps as a side benefit, but that wasn't the main reason. I've been looking forward to tonight, to the possibilities that it carried, ever since the other day in Chez Henri. I really didn't think I would wind up with you on my arm like this. I was prepared for you to cut me off at the knees. Well, then why? We stopped and I turned to her. I've been cut off at the knees before. It's not that bad. And there was the possibility of something magical happening. I took her chin gently in my hands and moved my face very close to hers feeling her breath on my skin. I smiled and didn't kiss her, but instead turned back and tucked her arm under mine and started walking away. You bastard, she said with a laugh. So I found you sexy and powerful and beautiful and not necessarily in that order. I thought I'd like to leave the bar with you at the end of the night. Is that so bad? Thought, past tense, she said. Semantic trap. I thought that because it's in the past has nothing to do with the way I feel about you right now. How do you feel about me? She asked. You are a fascinating, sexy, powerful, beautiful woman, and I'm enjoying every instant I'm with you. But now it's your turn to be on the hot seat, I told her. How do you feel about me? Why did you let a common engineman dance with you? Silly, she said, because you asked, and very nicely, too, I might add, and you should probably know that you're not a common engineman. Why do you say that? because a common engineman wouldn't go to a bar wearing Henri Roubaix. 
Okay, granted, but why cradle robbing? You got a thing for young stuff? I teased her. Truthfully, I was just dancing with you till we sat to talk. I had no intention of leaving so early with anybody when we sat down. What happened? We didn't talk. Hell yeah, I remember. I don't know the last time somebody just sat with me without trying to impress me or get into my pants or kiss up to me for one reason or another. Well, for the record, I was trying to get into your pants, I said with a grin. I was just waiting for an invitation. She laughed again, and I found I liked her laugh a lot. Damn, you are good. I interrupted. Please continue, I told her. Anyway, it was refreshing, so when we did start talking, you still weren't trying to impress me, and the more you weren't trying, the more impressed I was. I'm still in awe over Roubaix, and then to learn that you've talked to Brichot as well, and you've impressed Brill beyond anything I've ever seen. And Al, my God, you impressed Al. I don't know what's more astonishing, Al or Roubaix. Well, not to brag, but she was my fallback. What? Next to you, she's the most fascinating woman in the place, and she said she'd take out some of the sharper bits of steel. She didn't. Have I lied to you yet? I asked. Not that I've been able to tell, she said warily. You'd have gone? Are you kidding? If you'd turn me down? She's a fascinating woman. I think you're having me on, but anyway. After that, I wanted to leave with you quickly before anybody else got their claws in you. Once word gets out that you are a Chazonry, they'll be clawing down your door. They'll have to get through Brill, Diane, and Beverly first, I think, I said. And that was the most impressive of all. Seeing Brill look at you like that, she's not an easy person. <laughs> Believe me, I know. We walked along quietly, arm in arm, for a few ticks. It was quite pleasant. Was, she asked at last. Excuse me, was what? You said I was trying to get into your pants before. You're not now? I considered that for a moment. In the first place, that's another semantic trap. It's past tense because it denotes action that occurred in the past. I stopped and turned to her again. In the second place, I said, bringing my face close to hers again, teasing her with my breath, inhaling the delightful smell of her. I think we've already established that. At the moment, we're only negotiating time and place. I started to pull back, but she caught me by the hair and pulled my face back to hers. Not this time, you bastard. And she kissed me. Hard. Teeth were involved. Hers and mine. There were some other things that involved her sliding her arms up under my coat and holding onto me very tightly with those arms, and I'm pretty sure a leg as well. It took a tick for my vision to come back afterwards. Well, I said a bit breathlessly, I think negotiations are pretty much over. You seem to have made a decision. She grinned at me. It was a hungry grin. Oh yes, some time ago. Have you? Here, I asked, indicating the corridor. No, she said. I'm not in a mood to share you. At least, not tonight, she added with a very naughty smile. She took my arm then, and we walked a few meters to a small hotel where she already had a room. Planning ahead, I asked with a grin. Yes, she said frankly. I just didn't know for what. She keyed the room open and held the door for me. I stepped into what seemed like a large room after all those months in a birthing area. It was a typical single room with bed, bath, whole unit, communicator. She followed me in and closed the door, setting the privacy latch. I felt her hands run up my back and across my shoulders. May I take your coat? She asked coyly. Oh, but of course, I told her, and flecked my shoulders back so she could slip it off me. She held it and stroked her fingers across it. This is amazing, she said, pulled a hanger down from the closet. She turned her back to me and hung it carefully, kicking off her shoes in the process. Oh, much better. 
Her feet were beginning to get sore. She was putting on a little show for me, and I was enjoying it. She arched her back then and reached for the zipper in the back of her slacks, pulling it down slowly, a widening V showing more and more of the delicious flesh of her back, and then the lacy waistband on a pair of black briefs. She finished with the zipper and allowed the slacks to slide down her legs. Stepping out of them delicately, she bent down, picked them up carefully, straightening them before placing them on a hanger. She crossed her arms in front, catching the hem of her shirt and pulling it up over her head. She shook it once and gave it a hanger of its own. She was, of course, wearing no bra, and I could barely wait to stroke my fingers across the smooth expanse of her back. She stood there for a moment, back to me, knowing I was watching, wanting me to watch. You know, she said, turning her head in my direction to speak over her shoulder. I am the second maid on the Duchamp. Yes, I know, I told her. When I give an order, I expect it to be obeyed, she said, with a little huskiness creeping into her voice. That's as it should be, I agreed. She turned then and started walking very slowly toward me. I was pinned by her flashing eyes and couldn't even look down to admire that magnificent body. So, how about it, Spacer? Can you obey orders? Obey orders? I wasn't even sure I could breathe. I'll do my best, Tsar, I said with a grin. You'll do exactly as I say, she said, moving slowly, slowly closer, and execute my orders with speed and enthusiasm, she added with a special emphasis on that last word. I think I can be very enthusiastic, Tsar, I managed to choke out. She reached me then and started unbuttoning my shirt, slowly, looking at my face and mouth, licking her lips before unbuttoning the next button. I can be very demanding, she warned me in a low growl. She unbuttoned another button. That doesn't surprise me one bit, Sar, I said. She stripped the shirt off my shoulders, binding my arms loosely in the fabric before going to work on the belt buckle and buttons below. Why, I do declare, she purred after a few moments. You do seem to be up to the task. I did my best to follow her very explicit orders for the next few stands, and to perform them with as much enthusiasm as I could muster, which I'd like to believe was a great deal indeed. Thanks for listening to Episode 11 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from the Banks of Newfoundland, an Irish jig recorded in September of 1928 by Peter James Conlon, and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com golden. <laughs>